Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BioReport. That's deep dive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BioReport, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Biopsies have become associated with the area of oncology as they hold the promise of using fragments of DNA circulating in the blood that have been shed by tumors to provide early indications of recurrence and customized treatment strategies. The same approach, though, can be used for infectious diseases. Carius has developed a liquid biopsy test to provide rapid and non-invasive detection of more than 1,000 pathogens from a single blood draw. The Carius test helps clinicians avoid invasive, low-yield, and sequential diagnostic tests that can delay treatment for the most vulnerable hospitalized patients. We spoke to Alec Ford, CEO of Carius, about the company's liquid biopsy test, how it works, and how it can change the treatment of immunocompromised patients. Alec, thanks for joining us. Danny, really glad to be here. We're going to talk about Carius Diagnostics for Infectious Diseases and its use of genomics and artificial intelligence to get faster, more reliable answers. 
you're focusing on immunocompromised patients who face a heightened threat from infectious diseases. What's the need you're addressing? Yeah, Danny, a couple of important points on that. Uh, you know, folks who are immunocompromised who are in the hospital face some of the biggest threats from infections of any patient. And I'll talk to that in just a second. But just to create a little more context, right now in the United States uh, for infections, hospitals uh, spend anywhere from $28 billion to $45 billion. Uh, and most of those data points are before the pandemic. So for our, our hospital customers and for what hospitals are trying to accomplish in the United States, this represents an extraordinary uh, and large part of our healthcare investment. Specifically, for immunocompromised patients, and I appreciate that question, think about a patient who's going through cancer treatment. Think about someone who's going through organ transplantation or somebody who has an underlying disease like autoimmune disease that might immuno, uh, put them at increased risk of infection. These patients have significant threats uh, because their body just quite frankly can't fight an infection the way it would otherwise. And so the kinds of infections those patients get are usually uh, more severe. Uh, they're not expected in people who don't have some degree of immunosuppression. And a, a couple examples uh, that a lot of folks aren't aware of. If you think of just patients uh, who are going through cancer treatment, more than half of all cancer patients in the United States die from an infection. So just the idea that within oncology, you have more people succumbing to an infection during their cancer treatment than you do people succumbing to the malignancy. It's not a small matter at all, uh, specifically for those cancer patients. And because they're immunocompromised, uh, getting them the right treatment, the right anti-infective, and, and perhaps even before that, the right diagnosis becomes very, very important. The last thing I'll say, Danny, which makes the immunocompromised population and their diagnosis of infectious disease so important, is they need the right anti-infective. And quite frankly, as we all know from the history of precision medicine, you can't give someone the right treatment if you don't understand the right diagnosis, whether that is a mutation in someone's tumor uh, or anything that's similar. So an example of that, if you look at bone marrow transplant patients, 75% of bone marrow transplant patients that aren't on the appropriate antibiotics perish compared to only 32% of those patients going through bone marrow transplant patient if they are on the right anti-infectives. So for us at Carius, our core mission is, is to work towards a world where infectious disease isn't a threat to human health anymore. And we think we can help these populations of immunocompromised patients that are in the hospital as our first and most important focus. We've heard a lot about the use of liquid biopsies in cancers, which work by protecting cell-free DNA. These are DNA fragments shed by tumors that circulate in the blood. What are you detecting in your liquid biopsies? It's very similar, Danny, and, and I think uh, oncology liquid biopsy is a great example. So that patient who gets a liquid biopsy test, they're looking for small fragments of the tumor's DNA in that patient's bloodstream. Very similar for carious. If we think about a patient with pneumonia as an example, um, that patient's infection and the pathogen that's causing that infection, that unique pathogen that's causing that patient's pneumonia or the couple pathogens that might be causing their pneumonia are shedding DNA uh, from uh, those pathogens into the bloodstream during the course of an infection. And that's what we find. We find those small fragments 
of DNA that comes from an infecting pathogen in those patients. We're able to isolate it, we're able to quantify it, and we can help the clinicians understand exactly what's causing that infection and uh, just as importantly, help them select the right anti-infective for treatment. The big difference though, between oncology liquid biopsy and Carius's approach to liquid biopsy is really in the abundance. There's about a thousand fold more tumor DNA in a person's bloodstream uh, for someone going who has a, an active malignancy than there is for patients who are going through an active infection. So it becomes, think about how rare those small fragments of pathogens are in the bloodstream. It, uh, it's a much more significant technical, scientific, and laboratory challenge to make sure we can find those fragments. So given that, how does it differentiate pathogenic DNA fragments from the patient's own and, and find it in this large volume of, of blood? Yeah, I think, it, Danny, it's a great question. You know, the, the thing that's most abundant in a patient sample when we receive it is, of course, the patient's DNA, human DNA. Um, and there's a couple barriers that we have to overcome in order to be able to find those microbial fragments. The first is we have to, uh, we have to remove that high human background from the sample. We have to reduce the environmental contamination and the false signal that that might provide. You can imagine a lot of people touching a sample before it comes in. We have to reduce the bias uh, in terms of how we look at different pathogens that we might identify. Uh, we have a proprietary uh, genomic reference database that we use for the pathogens we identify. So we ensure that uh, we can accurately identify those pathogens from the DNA. And then there's cross-reactivity that actually happens uh, between microbes that we have to further optimize the process for. So those are some of the pieces. I think uh, from a chemistry standpoint and laboratory process standpoint, in addition, the company has worked very hard to build an artificial intelligence and machine learning platform to take this enormous amount of microbial DNA data that we're able to see and ensure that we can identify those specific microbes that are causing the infection. Um, and it's a really important answer for the clinicians that we're trying to support as they provide care in the hospital. I suspect if, if the body's immune system is doing its job, it can kill pathogens that, that infect a person. Is it ever the case where a person can be detected of has, having a virus that it successfully killed? Well, I think, you know, we can, if someone has an active virus in their bloodstream DNA, I don't know if this totally gets to your question, but if they have an active virus provided it's a DNA virus, we can identify it. Um, but there are situations, of course, where our body does amazing things in terms of our immune function and addresses the infections there. The difference for the people we're most focused on, those with some degree of immunosuppression, uh, the important point is most of those people don't have a functioning immune system. And so as a result, the things that you and I might normally fight that we get exposed to, or even the pathogens that might normally reside in our body, we're able to keep those at bay and keep those at the right levels based on a functioning immune system. And if you're an oncology patient, if you're a transplant patient or another patient, maybe with advanced age or something like autoimmune syndrome, um, your ability to fight infections is dramatically reduced. How large a group of pathogens are you actually able to detect with this? So the great thing about the Carious test is we have the ability to identify viruses, bacteria, yeasts, and parasites uh, that number more than 1,500 
And so when you think about uh, prevalence of different kinds of infections in hospital, being able to find greater than 1,500 pathogens among these patients, we're finding the vast majority of the causative pathogens for people who have an active infection. And does the test only detect pathogens it's been taught, or is it capable of recognizing any foreign DNA? We can, we can recognize novel pathogens. I think it's a really important question. Uh, that said, if it's not in our reference genome database, we have a variety of quality standards and checks that are in place to ensure that we can confirm for the clinician this is something they need to pay attention to. And how quickly can you return results? It's an important thing. You know, unlike oncology, where, you know, seven days or 10 days or 14 days or more might be acceptable in terms of informing a, a cancer patient's care, uh, an infectious disease, as you well know, Danny, you need an answer right away. So we provide an answer within 24 hours of sample receipt. So if you add the time it takes to FedEx a sample here to Redwood Shores in California, you're talking about a 48-hour total turnaround time for the majority of our customers. My, my guess is this isn't being used for surveillance, but really diagnosis. If How early in the progress of a infection can this detect the pathogen? It, it's such an important question. We had a, we had a data set come out last year uh, associated with one of the transplant meetings. And that, uh, that data set that we, uh, in stem cell transplant patients specifically, that said in, in stem cell transplant patients, and I believe this was a pediatric cohort, Danny, in those pediatric stem cell patients, we were actually able to identify an infective and an active infection before it was even clinically observable. And walk me through the process. I take it you're using a, is this a CLIA lab model that you're using? It is. We have a CLAP, uh, CAP CLIA approved laboratory here in Redwood Shores, and we also recently received New York State approval. So what's the process of going from drawing a sample to a physician getting a result? And yeah, a couple important pieces on that journey. The first part, of course, we talked about the fact that that pathogens leave traces, these fragments in a, in a patient's blood at the site of infection. Um, the test we identify, we isolate it, and we quantify the microbe. While we're going through the specimen processing steps, we look at those fragments. They're extracted uh, from the sample. We use shotgun DNA sequencing uh, in the process uh, to make sure that we can uh, identify it. Uh, we then go through sequence analysis and reporting back to the clinician. A um, couple important other parts of the process during the final analysis, uh, one thing that's unique about the carious test versus many other technologies out there is we actually quantify the uh, amount of microbial cell-free DNA in the sample from the infecting pathogen. And you can imagine, well, does it really matter? You could ask the question, does it really matter how strong the signal is or how much uh, circulating uh, microbial cell-free DNA is in that patient, it matters a lot because if we go back to the patient perhaps going through a solid organ transplant, the clinician taking care of that patient not only wants to know that that patient has an infection, but they actually want to know that after they begin treatment for that infection, that that microbial signal is going down the right way, and it helps them understand that the patient's receiving the appropriate care and they're responding to the anti-infective uh, in, in an appropriate way. So what does the physician actually get as a result from you? 
They get a couple things. One, they get uh, they get the identification of the specific pathogen causing the infection, and we've been able to compare that to a large cohort of statistical controls. It's right around the 98th percentile. We again, as I'd mentioned previously, Danny, we quantify the molecules per microliter. That's our quantification measure for looking at the amount of a specific pathogen in a patient's sample. Uh, and then a positive result for that specific uh, patient, uh, they both get in, a, in the form of a fax report from us, but we also have a portal and a mobile app. So if I'm an infectious disease physician and I cover three hospitals in a specific community, I'm instantly notified when that result is available. And even if I'm not at that hospital, I can call the care team that is there. I can ensure the patient is treated the appropriate way and they get put on the right therapy. How does this compare to existing tests? What does this change for the physician or patient? Danny, I think that the, pro the single most important distinction for the carious test based on our history and based on how these tests uh, have worked historically is the fact that we don't require a sample of infected tissue or fluid. Let's go back to that pneumonia patient we talked about before. So a patient is admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. Let's say they're an oncology patient. And uh, for me to provide the right diagnosis with most of the tools that are available today, I actually need to get a sample from the lung for that patient. And there's a couple ways I could do it. If I'm able to get a sputum culture, sometimes those have a varying degree of performance in terms of actually having a sample of what's causing the infection in them. If they're more critically ill, a physician might uh, do what we call a, a, an invasive procedure, like a bronchial alveolar lavage or a bronchoscopy to either run air or fluid through the patient's lung to, to pull that pathogen back out. So the big, the single most important difference for the carious test that our providers really appreciate is they may not have to do that invasive biopsy. They may not have to do a needle biopsy uh, going into the site of an infection in order to get that infected tissue or fluid out of the patient. They can just very simply send us a blood sample and we can identify the cause of infection. So that's probably the first most important way. I think the other important elements of this, Danny, you know, um, infectious disease diagnostics at their root require a hypothesis. So the first thing I have to do as a doctor is I have to guess what is causing your infection. And most of the technologies that are available today, I might say, oh, you have a respiratory infection. So I order a panel with 15 common respiratory pathogens in it. Sometimes the thing causing their infection isn't included in one of those panels or one of those single analyte tests. I think the other piece uh, I had mentioned previously where you need a, a sample of infected tissue or fluid is a really important difference. I think the third, uh, Danny, and not a lot of people realize this, is if you have a patient, especially someone who's immunocompromised, there's a decent chance that that patient has been pretreated with antibiotics, presumptively or empirically. If that happens, the tests I routinely use in the hospital for culture and identification and susceptibility, those tests actually are really, really unlikely to work because what happens when you treat someone presumptively with antibiotics is you reduce the ability of those diagnostics to identify what's causing the infection. I think that's the other, and I think the other difference is treatment delay. You would think with a send out test that takes 48 hours that the stuff that's routinely available in the hospital would generally be faster. We get a lot of feedback from our customers that our 24 hours after receipt turnaround time 
is significantly faster than other situations where they might be trying to grow something in the hospital laboratory for three to five days. And so the turnaround time is a big difference. And the final one, I think, is an important one relative to healthcare resources uh, in the U.S. is we don't require an invasive diagnostic approach to understanding what the cause of an infection is. And it, you don't have to do a lot of research to look at what both the cost uh, is of invasive diagnostics like biopsies, bronchoalveolar lavage, bronchoscopy. You can look at the cost of those as a drain on our healthcare system, or you can look at the fact that those aren't risk-free. There are established odds ratios, side effects, and significant uh, morbidity associated with invasive diagnostics. So it's not risk-free to go in and get a sample of that infected tissue or fluid. Those are probably the big areas in terms of how the carious test compares to what's commercially available today. And how do you compare on cost to a more traditional test? Yeah, the, it's, the cost is all over the board for the technologies that are out there uh, in a given hospital. Some technologies are in tens of dollars. Some of the newer PCR technologies are in the hundreds. The big difference for the, and the carious test, just to be clear, is a $2,000 list price test. Hospitals pay us directly uh, for the result. Uh, the big difference on the carious test is you could, be a, you could be a doctor in a hospital. You might have to order four, five, six, seven tests we just had a, a data set come out on transplant patients that said when they have an infect solid organ transplant, that said when they have an infectious event, on average, nine diagnostic tests are ordered to understand the cause of their infection. So you can imagine if I'm ordering all those tests one after another one, the first one fails, the second one doesn't work, the third one, not only are there incremental costs, but unfortunately for this population, there's incremental time. And so that can be a real challenge in terms of the practice of infectious disease. What's been done to validate the test and what do you know about its accuracy? Yeah, the, probably the, the single uh, most important hallmark point in our analytical and clinical validation journey, Danny, was our Nature Microbiology paper that came out a couple of years ago. And that validated, uh, was a clinical validation that uh, found 94% agreement with blood culture in a cohort of almost 400 patients uh, that were treated with, that were treated for some of the more most severe infectious disease, specifically sepsis, um, we have about 40 publications, peer-reviewed publications, and 70 abstracts, as well as 10 either previous or ongoing clinical trials in terms of ensuring this has the not only the right level of analytical performance and validation, but the right level of clinical validation and. The only thing I'll add to that, Danny, is in that clinical validation work and that trial work and that evidence generation for the organization, when you look at our ability to help people avoid invasive diagnostics, about 63% of the, uh, in several of our studies, 63% of the patients who would have needed invasive diagnostic, uh, there was a potential that we could have helped them avoid that. And then when you think about this other dynamic, and this is uh, talked about a lot more today than it ever has been. We have a problem with the antibiotics that we have in this country. They get used too frequently. They get used too broadly. Uh, we talked about the fact they get used presumptively, but we don't have the number of new anti-infectives coming on the market that we did uh, when I was in that industry uh, 20, 25 years ago. The, uh, the big challenge with antibiotics is not only do we have a limited number of antibiotics, we have fewer and fewer that are coming on the market. So 
our ability to get someone on the right antibiotic as opposed to a larger amount of antibiotics that may be unnecessary really helps us contribute to one of the biggest challenges around antimicrobial stewardship and uh, appropriate diagnostic stewardship as a company. One of the limits of the test today is that it doesn't detect RNA-based viruses like COVID-19. Is this something you expect to change over time or have other products? Yeah, it's, it's an important question. Um, RNA viruses like SARS-CoV-2 um, are obviously very important to the healthcare that's taking place in hospitals in the U.S. We do have plans to add RNA-based viruses to our test. Uh, we're also looking at antimicrobial resistance as an important feature for our customers so they know not only do they have a specific pathogen, but that uh, pathogen uh, has resistance markers genetically that tell the, the clinical team that they should treat it more aggressively in terms of its resistance to current anti-infectives. The test has been commercially available since 2016. Is there any efforts to go through any regulatory processes or, or you have any FDA hurdles you're thinking about going for? It's a good question, um, Danny. The test is currently uh, CAP, CLIA, and New York State approved, which allows us to offer the test as a laboratory developed test in the United States. Uh, I'd mentioned that uh, New York State approval real briefly. The, the, this was the first time that the New York State approval, and they have an extraordinarily high threshold in terms of reviewing new assays and new diagnostics. Uh, the test was actually approved for all five pathogen categories, bacteriology, mycobacteriology, mycology, parasitology, and virology. Um, and so this was the first what we call metagenomic test that had ever been through New York State, and we worked really closely with them. I think in the future, uh, I absolutely anticipate that we're going to have some really important dialogue, not, not only with the FDA, but also with the CDC. We want to be a good actor relative to how we can contribute to healthcare, especially infectious disease-related healthcare. So I think as we look at things like outpatient indications for the test, as we look about, as we look at uh, trying to contribute what we've learned from our clinical genomics database, uh, along with the CDC and FDA, there'll be a lot of dialogue in the days ahead. What's been the discussion with payers, and are they demanding anything of you in terms of demonstrating value? You know, we have, as I mentioned previously, hospitals pay us directly for the test which is a little different than a lot of the laboratory-developed tests that have to go through Medicare approval and then get uh, achieve either some kind of guideline change or get commercial health plan approval. So hospitals pay us directly. That said, I believe our hospital customers want to see very strong clinical data that says it offers a better yield and better turnaround time and better clinical result than the standard of care. And I think the other piece that our hospital customers are going to think is really important, they're going to want to see some kind of cost offset. They're going to want to know that when they use this test in a stem cell transplant patient, a patient with a, with a uh, solid tumor um, or a patient going through solid organ transplant, they're going to want to know, hey, I, do I save some portion of length of stay? Do I save on the number of diagnostics that I use? Do I save on the anti-infectives that I have to give that patient? They're going to um, have a sincere interest in seeing those kind of data, and those are data we're working on now. We, we had one publication come out uh, end of last summer that's an example of that, and that was when the carious test was used to diagnose fungi or yeasts in immunocompromised populations when a 
budget impact model was developed to measure its economic impact in an institution, uh, the institution would get all of their spend back uh, in using the Carius test. A little bit more, I think it was around $2,300 back in that budget impact model um, in terms of how much you could save them in using it for the diagnosis of fungal infections. You joined the company as CEO in late 2020. This followed a $165 million venture round for the company. What was the opportunity you saw and how are you looking to expand the market and grow the company from here? Yeah, two great questions, Danny. For me, this was an easy decision. Uh, I began my career 34 years ago uh, in anti-infectives uh, with a large pharmaceutical company when people were still rolling out new anti-infectives. And I spent about a little over a decade with that company, almost exclusively focused on antifungals, antibiotics, those for hospital-acquired and community-acquired infections. And so that was the first decade of my time. I spent the middle part of my career in vaccines, and, uh, and that was very rewarding work uh, uh, during that time. And then I spent my last 10 years in genomics, uh, working for a company uh, that offered hereditary cancer testing. And so for me, um, when I look at the physician adoption uh, opportunity that exists, I know that genomic technologies, even though they may be routine and available for an oncologist, this is the first time there's been an advanced genomic technology that's been available for infectious disease. And so I appreciate what's required in terms of physician education, uh, hospital education in terms of that journey. I appreciate the level of evidence that we need to generate as a company and what the value is of that evidence, both clinical and economic to our customers. And then the last part is for any physician who's adopting a new technology like this, you need to be very close with them, both in terms of that the technology gets used in the right kind of patient, but also to make sure that they're getting the right kind of support. Uh, we have a great medical affairs team um, that is available for every single sample result. And they're all infectious disease physicians and they're ready to talk with any clinician who would like to discuss their result further. So I appreciate how difficult that journey is. I think the second part of your question, Danny, was around the future and what's exciting about Carius in terms of where we're headed. We have our head down right now for immunocompromised patients that are in the hospital. But as time goes forward, we'll look at a couple different things. We're going to look at how the test can be used on an outpatient basis. We're going to look at other hospital indications where the test could be useful. And we're also going to have an opportunity in the future, and this is a little off the topic of infectious disease, but we're going to have an opportunity in the future to look at microbial cell-free DNA and its ability to quantify and measure uh, the human microbiome from a blood sample and whether or not microbial cell-free DNA could be useful in other disease states. You know, you don't, you can't open up a newspaper without reading about how important the microbiome is. And we think we're in a really unique position to quantify and measure what's taking place in the human microbiome without a stool sample or without a, another kind of local sample for measuring that. And so that's a little further down the road, but that's going to be an important area of discovery for us. Alec Ford, CEO of Carius. Alec, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, I'm really grateful you took the time to hear about Carius and what we're trying to work on in supporting some of the critical patients, especially those that are immunocompromised in the hospital. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.